We have got to dive in. I have a ton of notes. Yeah, one person's fired up about a ton of notes. The rest of you are like, okay, wait, does this mean I need to get on and DVR the football game? Am I going to be late here or what? No, we're going we're gonna to jump in right now. Let's dive in. Nehemiah, nine, Nehemiah 8, 9, and 10. Let me give you just a quick synopsis of what we're covering. Nehemiah chapter 6, they built the wall. They finished the wall. We handled that last week. Nehemiah chapter 8, we're going to dive in on understanding God. I'm going to call it the Watergate moment. Nehemiah 9, they grow in intimacy with God. That's the six-hour service. Uh-oh, that's right. Better get prepared for it. Nehemiah, that doesn't mean we're having a six-hour service. It means they had one. Nehemiah 10, the covenant with God, that is the sealed document. Here's where we land with the people that Nehemiah is leading. They finished the wall, the wall's completed, and now they're looking around at each other and they're saying to themselves, now what? Now what? The wall's up, the gate's on, now, now what are we supposed to do? In other words, the wall was broken, the wall has been rebuilt, but their spirits are still broken. Something's still broken within them, and they're looking around, and they're saying to themselves, we thought this great move of building a wall would solve all of our problems, but now the wall's built, and, and where am I? What does it mean for me? Nehemiah chapter 8, 1 through 10. We're covering three chapters. I'm only going to read the first 10 verses of chapter 8, and then we'll, we'll rip through all of this, okay? Let's dive in. In October, how ironic. When the Israelites had settled in their towns and all the people assembled with a unified purpose at the square just inside the water gate. There you have it. They've come inside. They're inside of the gates. They've settled in their towns. And now they're all coming back together. And they, they have this, this thing about them that is like, what's wrong with us? Why don't we feel better? Why isn't everything better? So they asked Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given for Israel to obey. So on October 8, Ezra the, Ezra the priest brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included men and women and all the children old enough to understand. He faced the square just inside the water gate, that's where we're going to be, from early morning until noon and read aloud to everyone who could understand. All the people listened closely to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform that had been made for the occasion. Do you see this honor that they have? They read the entire book of the law. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Exodus, Numbers Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They read the first five books of the law, the first five books of the Torah. They build a platform, they elevate them, and they stand the whole time. So, so Ezra stood, high, Ezra the scribe, on the high wooden platform that had been made for the occasion. To his right stood all the characters of Harry Potter, okay? And then we'll skip down to verse 5. <laughs> I, I went through and listened to them in Hebrew, and I was like, yeah, I'm not even going to pretend to be smart to the church. It's like, mahashahakalach. No thanks. All right, you get it. Verse 5, Ezra stood on the platform in full view of all the people. When they saw him open the book, they all rose to their feet. Then Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people chanted, Amen and Amen, as they lifted their hands. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, another cast of Star Wars is there, then instructed the people in the law while everyone remained in their place. Verse 8, 
They read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people understand each passage. Then Nehemiah catches, this is where it gets really good. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who were interpreting the people said to them, I love the, the teaching team that he has. You've got Nehemiah, the leader, you've got Ezra, the pastor, and you've got the Levites, the group leaders, the small group leaders, the people who are serving in the church. They've all gathered together, and they're explaining the meeting. And he says, don't mourn or weep on such a day as this. For today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people had all been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. And Nehemiah continued, Go and celebrate with a rich feast of foods and sweet drinks and share gifts of food with people who have nothing prepared. This is a sacred day before our Lord. Don't be dejected and sad for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Got an 11-year-old son who is a magician or a master manipulator. We haven't figured it out yet, but there is somehow, some way, this kid winds up in our bed every single night. He's not even walking yet. And Anna looked at me the other night and she says, I don't know how he got here. What? 11 months. My goodness. I've got three. Cut me some slack, all right? If I know where two out of the three are, I'm doing good. Okay, so I've got an 11-month-old, and I don't know how he does this, but he winds up in our bed every night. Dude can't walk. He sleeps in a marshmallow outfit. It's like a Merlin sleep suit. He can't move. Anna literally looked at me the other night when we woke up in the morning, and he was, he was literally on top of me. He was so tired, but he couldn't fall asleep, and he was just dropping his head on my head. Clunk clunk. And I looked at her, I was like, get, get off. I was like, what is going on? And she said, I, I have no idea how he got in our bed. I said, where did he start sleeping? She said, the crib. And then I fell asleep and now he's here and I don't know what happened. We have no idea, but it just keeps happening, right? So what I've committed to is the middle of the night diaper. That's my job. Anna feeds the baby. Anna puts the baby to sleep. In the middle of the night, I get that 3 a.m. diaper call, and then Anna takes over 5, 30, 6 o'clock when I get up, all right? So it's the middle of the night, and Anna wakes me up, and she says, diaper, diaper, and he's in our bed, you know, twirling in circles. I don't know what he's doing, right? Rotisserie hot dog. There's rolling over. And so I was like, all right, fine. I grab a wipe, it's pitch, or a diaper, it's pitch black, I can't see anything, and I unzip the deal, and I pop, pop each of them legs out, you know, and get the diaper undone, and I throw, and you, you know you're an old, old athlete when you throw and you listen for the trash can, like, and you hear, okay, got it, right? Buckets at 3 a.m. with a diaper and a pail, right? So then I put the diaper on him, close it up, zip him up, slide him over to his mom, Lay back down. About two hours later, she is wakes me up in a screaming frenzy. Luke, Luke, Luke. I said, what? She said, there's pee everywhere. I said, what? She said, it's in the sheets. It's on the bed. It's in the pillows. It's on me. She's soaking wet. And I'm like, well, I, don't, I don't know. This kid's peeing like a toddler on a road trip. It's just everywhere, right? Our whole bedroom. It's even like there's, there's marks on the headboard. I'm like, what is happening? I told her, I don't know. I put a diaper on him. I don't know. She said, well, help me. So I turn the flashlight on on my phone. I locate him. He's soaking wet and wide-eyed like this, right? 
So I pick him up and I carry him over. I set him on the changing table, unzip both him, and it's soaking wet. I was laughing. I didn't know what was going on. And there he is, and he's got a diaper on, but the diaper is inside out. <laughs> now, let me tell you something. When you, when you try, when, do you know, I, I, I have three kids, and, and I've been raising kids for like eight years now, and had no idea if you put a diaper on backwards, it doesn't help the mess, it multiplies it. It like repels it and pushes it everywhere, all over the place. When you, when you think you're covering it up, but then you realize you've covered it up with the wrong thing or the wrong way, all it does is multiply it. You know why Israel's in a mess right now? Do you know why their people are in a mess? The nation is in a mess. They're standing inside of the completed walls. They're standing. The gates are done. They've unified together, and they're still a mess. Why? Because they keep trying to cover up their brokenness with the wrong thing. They keep covering up their brokenness with the wrong thing. They started in Egypt and wound up as slaves. That didn't work. They wound up in the wilderness. They tried to cover it up with rebellion and complaining. That didn't work. They wound up in Babylonian captivity. They tried to be their own God. That didn't work. They linked up with Nehemiah. They rebuilt the walls. That didn't work. And now they're standing around saying to themselves, I don't understand why I'm still broken. They were physically broken. The labor was incredibly intense. It was grueling, and they were spiritually broken. Over and over and over, they have tried, and over and over and over. They've masked their brokenness with the wrong thing, and now they're standing around saying, we don't know what else to do. Their identity had been completely stripped from them. When you go into captivity, they take everything from you. They burn it to the ground. They crush it to rubble. And they force you to follow the rituals and liturgies of that day. So they're all following these Persian worship principles. They're standing around saying, we have no idea who we are. Our spirits are still broken. Our spirits are still missing something. What do we do? And you know what they did? called for the word. They called for the word. They said, send Ezra and give us the book of the law. Why? Because when you are broken and you have no idea who you are anymore and you are searching through life and you've tried everything that you can to satisfy the empty longing of your soul, nothing will satisfy that like God's word for you. Nothing will satisfy. So they go to Genesis and they see God as a creator and they read about him being a creator. They go to Exodus and they see God as a deliverer. They go to Leviticus and they see that God wants to make them holy. They go to Numbers and they see that God was with them the entire journey. They go to Deuteronomy and they see that God is the one who wants to bless them. And over and over and over they're catching revelation of who God originally created them to be and who he has called them to be. Listen, nothing will define you and satisfy you like who God has called you to be. It's right here. Listen to me. When I wake up in the middle of the night and I can't sleep, I don't need to pop a pill. I need a psalm. I need a psalm in my soul. 
When I wake up and I have anxiety, I don't need to smoke weed. I need a psalm. When I am depressed and I'm stressed and I'm worn out, I don't need a bottle of Grey Goose. I need a psalm. Quit acting all spiritual. When I'm lonely and I feel abandoned and I don't feel like anyone cares, I don't need to look at porn. I need a psalm. I need something that's going to speak to my soul. Why? Because all those other things may numb the pain, but they don't nourish your spirit. Everything else will numb the pain. It will cause a temporary blank in the reality that you're living in, but they're not going to nourish your spirit like the Word of God. So what happens? They dive deep into the Word of God. They call Ezra, they build a platform, and they say to Ezra, tell us who we are. So we don't even know anymore. Help us with our brokenness. Because we can't even figure it out anymore. And what does he do? Three things. Nehemiah 8, Nehemiah 9, and Nehemiah 10. Nehemiah 8. They begin to understand who God is. They have a Watergate moment and they understand who he is. Contextually, we've set it up for you. You already know what's going on. They've gathered for the unified purpose of figuring out who the heck they are. They are broken still spiritually, and they are looking for their identity, and they call Ezra, they build a platform, they stand to their feet, and he gives them the word. Recognize the emphasis over and over and over. Nehemiah 8 verse 2. So on October 8, Ezra the priest brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included the men and women and all the children old enough to understand. Nehemiah 8 verse 3. He faced the square just inside the water gate from early morning until noon and read aloud to everyone who could. All the people listened closely to the book of the law. Nehemiah 8 verse 8 says they read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people each passage. They're helping them understand. What are they helping them to understand? I'll, I'll walk you through it. So they're beginning to understand, and as they're beginning to understand who God created them to be, what he has done in their life in the past, what they have neglected and messed up on their own, look at what begins to happen. Nehemiah 8, verse 9. says, Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who were interpreting for the people, said to them, Don't mourn or weep on such a day as this? What did their understanding result in? Mourning and weeping. Mourning and weeping. They finally begin to understand. And as they begin to understand, they are mourning and weeping. And Ezra says to them, don't mourn or weep on such a day as this. For today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. For the people had all been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Listen to me. The deepest revelations about God should bring out the deepest emotions in your spirit. The 
deepest revelations of God, of who God is, when you begin to understand him, you begin to really grasp who he is. The deepest emotions of your soul should come at the deepest revelations of God. They're finally beginning to understand who God is. And the result is they're grieving. They're weeping. And as they're weeping, he says to them, don't begin to grieve. Nehemiah 9 is a confession. And we're, we're going to touch on it a little bit. It's a confession of this weeping. They are just broken. And they're finally confronted with their brokenness. And the result is their weeping. Now we get to the classic verse that gets posted on social media all the time. Nehemiah 8 verse 10. And Nehemiah continued, Go and celebrate with a feast of rich foods and sweet drinks and share gifts of food with people who have nothing prepared. This is a sacred day before our Lord. Do not be dejected or sad. For the joy of the Lord is your strength. We do a dangerous, dangerous job of misinterpreting that verse as a rebuke to someone who is sad, dejected, or broken. And we do it all the time. What are you sad for? The joy of the Lord is your strength. What are you broken for? The joy of the Lord is your strength. That is not what Nehemiah is doing. He is not rebuking a people who are broken. In fact, the Lord loves brokenness. In chapter 9, the entire prayer, it's the longest prayer in the Bible recorded on confession, is a prayer of brokenness, and the Lord blesses them for it. What does Paul say, 2 Corinthians 7:10? For what do I desire of you more than a broken and contrite spirit? That's where God can move. What do we see with Job? What do we see with Joseph? What do we see with Israel? Brokenness. And the Lord honors the brokenness. Why did he honor the broken widow's offering? Because in her brokenness she gave all that she had. Brokenness was not the problem. We talk about the cruciform life. Talk about dying to ourselves and living for Christ. A life of brokenness. We we celebrate Jesus' miracles, but we don't recognize our greatest intimacy with Jesus comes at his crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection. So when we really begin to celebrate, we celebrate all these supernatural things and we lose sight of the fact that brokenness is what brought us into intimacy with God. So if it's not the brokenness, what is he talking about when he says, do not grieve for the joy of of the Lord is your strength. As Israel was beginning to understand, what do we need to understand? The goal was not to just read their Bible, it was to understand God. Look, I don't want you to just read your Bible. I want you to understand God. I don't want you to wake up in the morning and check a box so that you complete a reading plan. I want you to wake up in the morning and meet with God and understand who he is. So what is Nehemiah saying here? says, for the joy of the Lord, that is a noun, that's in the Hebrew noun form, as ownership of it. It is his joy, it is who he is. When Nehemiah says, do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength, he's saying, who God is, that joy is your strength. The action form of this verb, the thing that makes it happen, the actions that take place that give God the attribute, the noun of being joy, are found in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 1 verse 11. 
He says, what makes you think I want all your sacrifices, says the Lord? I am sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened calves. I get no pleasure, same word. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and the lambs and goats. In other words, he's saying, all of your superficial religious activity brings me no pleasure. All of your fake it till you make it, all of your act like it's okay, all of your resisting what I really want you, brings me no pleasure. You think I get any joy out of that? So what does bring God joy? What is this joy of the Lord that is our strength? Isaiah 53.10. Yet it pleased the Lord. Same word. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. This is the prophecy of Jesus. So he finds pleasure in giving Jesus as a sacrifice. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. Same word. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Isaiah 62 verse 4. Never again will you be called the forsaken city or the desolate land. Your name will be the city of God's delight and the bride of God. For the Lord delights, same word, the Lord delights in you and will claim you as his bride. So what is Nehemiah saying that the nation of Israel needs to understand that in your brokenness, that in your pain, in your loss, in your hurting, in your loss of identity, the only thing that can strengthen you is God's desire, his love, and his joy to give us Jesus so that we can have grace, so that we can have mercy, so that we can have love in that moment. That's what he's saying. He's saying keep the brokenness, but don't let it become dejected and sad. Let it turn Turn to joy. Why? Because God found great pleasure in giving Jesus for you. What is your strength in brokenness? Jesus! What is your strength in brokenness? God's love for you. That he gave his son up for you. That's what brokenness should do in us. It's the place it should bring us to. To say, my goodness... Lord, my heart is grieved. I am broken. I don't understand. I, I don't even know who I am anymore. But my strength comes from knowing that Jesus died for me. My strength comes from knowing that you took joy and you took delight in giving me hope. Giving me eternal hope. And then look at what happens. Nehemiah 8 verse 12. So the people went away to eat and drink at a festive meal, to share gifts of food, and to celebrate with great joy because they heard God's words and understood them. What did they understand? They understood that standing inside of the walls that they thought would fix them, standing inside of the great life that they thought would fix them, staring at a bank account that stacked up thinking it would fix me, Staring at the big dream home that I've wanted to build, that it would fix me. Staring at the company that I've wanted to build my whole, thinking it would fix me. And knowing that it doesn't. And being empty in soul 
and being broken and having no idea who I am anymore because everything I placed my hope and my identity and my life in is something that only the world will keep when I'm gone. And yet knowing that in that moment, understanding that God took joy in giving us Jesus, that that's where my strength comes from. That's a strength that can't be taken from you. That's a strength when everything is crumbling. That's a strength that you can cling to. And they celebrate that strength. Never seen this on display more than I, I did the funerals. The second funeral I've ever done for a man who lost his nine-year-old son. I had just had a child too. So I was just, I was a mess. Lost his nine-year-old boy. I'm standing there with him. And I went to check in with him after or before the funeral. And I remember walking up to him and I didn't want to say, how are you doing? It's like the stupidest thing you can say at a, at a celebration of life, right? So I walked up and I, was, I, I said to him, where are you at right now? Where are you at? You know what we're about to do? And, and I, was, I was barely holding it together. And he looked at me. And I'll never forget it. And he said, I can barely breathe. He said, I feel like I'm suffocating. Literally, he said, I hurt so bad, I can't breathe. Sometimes I feel like I'm going to fall over and pass out. And he said, and then I start thinking that he beat me to heaven. He said, then I start thinking that he's with the Lord. I start thinking of VBS when he was seven years old and he came home to me and he told me he made a decision to follow Jesus. And I think about at the end of that camp, we baptized him. And I think about taking that picture of him being baptized. And I think of all of these moments that we have. And he said, I can barely breathe. I'm hurting so bad. But I know where he is. And for some reason, I find joy. That is the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's the strength that we're talking about. That's the lifeblood that we're talking about, okay? So he rolls in and he just, he confesses to them, the joy of the Lord is your strength and it's the only thing that's going to strengthen you in your brokenness and you need to know what that joy is. That joy is Jesus who is going to come, who has come for us, died for us in the grace of God to give us new life. Nehemiah 9. Man, we are late. That's okay. I'm going to get you right here. Six-hour service, right? How can you preach about a six-hour service and not run late, right? Nehemiah 9, 1 through 3, on October 31st. Man, I should have preached this next Sunday. No, we're going to keep going. <laughs> Nehemiah 9, 1 through 3, on October 31st, the people assembled again. Interesting, right? And this time they fasted and dressed in burlap and sprinkled dust on their heads. Verse 2, those of Israelite descent separated themselves from all foreigners as they confessed their own sins and the sins of their ancestors. Verse 3, they remained standing in place for three hours while the book of the law of the Lord their God was read allowed to them. They stood for three hours and received the word. You get antsy when we go over 35 minutes. You start checking your watch. You start thinking about faking a bathroom trip and not coming back because kickoff's happening. Kids, 35 minutes. We start wondering, man, is he almost done? He's only on point two. I know he does three every time. We're a little late here. Three. And then we wonder why we don't have revival in our own hearts. These guys are standing for three 
hours laboring over the word, pouring into the word for three. They're in the middle of revival. A nation is being revived. And what are they doing? They are spending hours laboring in the word of God. And we get antsy after 35 minutes. We create five-minute devotionals and wonder why we have a five-minute faith and then we get attacked for six minutes and fall apart. And start wondering, well, where, what, is, uh, what is happening to me? Well, how, how come I can't stand it all? Because they let, look, and, and I hear all this talk about revival. I'm just going to rant for a minute. I hear all this talk for, about revival, revival this, revival that, revival that. Look through history and find out how great revivals happened. Laboring over the word. The Great Awakening. Second Great Awakening. The Reformation. Azusa Street Revival, the evangelical movement. What, what happened? They just labored over the word. I stood on the doorsteps of a home where William Seymour preached in California for hours. He preached so long, the police patrols had to start rerouting traffic because he packed hundreds of people for hours in the street from a porch preaching the word. That's how God moves. That's how great things happen. Got to give him more than 10 minutes. Got to give him more than 8 minutes. All right, I'm done. (laughs) Then for three more hours, nope, we're back at it. Because they go three hours in the Word. Catch this. Three hours in the Word. Then for three more hours, they confessed their sins and worshiped the Lord their God. We do a prayer and worship night for an hour. And some of you are like, oh, it's too long for me. My lower back's going to start hurting. I can't stand for another hour, and I got too much going on, and I'm too busy, and I got all this stuff happening, and we, we, don't, we, we skip out on an hour, and they're three hours in the Word, three hours in worship and confession. Guys, this is not hard. You have everything that you need. You've got the Word. You've got worship. You can confess. The problem is not us not having what we need. It's our priorities are all messed up. We give God five minutes, and then we give Instagram two hours. We give God one worship song, and then we give Drake our entire workout. And we wonder why we're at war in our spirit. We sit around and ask ourselves, why am I constantly in spiritual turmoil? Why am I constantly so bothered? Why am I constantly feeling like I'm battling and fighting? Because a five-minute faith lasts five minutes. Five-minute faith is going to last you five minutes. So you better hope the devil don't have six. So he wraps it up and he says, for three more hours, they confessed their sins and worshiped the Lord their God. Nehemiah 9, 5. Here's the result. Then the leaders of the Levites, Jeshua, Kadamiel, Benai, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hoadiah, Shebaniah, and Pethaniah, and everyone else from Lord of the Rings, <laughs> called out to the people, stand up and praise the Lord your God. God, for he lives from everlasting to everlasting. They prayed, may your glorious name be praised. May it be exalted above all blessing and praise. And then they launch into the longest prayer recorded in Scripture. It's like 38 or 39 verses. And it is a prayer with one purpose, confession. Where should the word and where should worship lead you? 
to a deep place of confession. Confession is a beautiful thing. We sometimes just, you know, neglect confession to Catholics and not recognize the wonder of confession. The be- confession makes God more magnanimous. Magnanimous is a word that means greater and more powerful, yet sympathizing and interacting and taking care of the lesser. When we are confessing to God, we are making him so much greater. Confession is saying, God, I can't, but you can. So help me. I can't, but you can, and I confess every ounce of that to you. Help me. You will never find a place in Scripture where God rejects confession. You will never find a place where he rejects confession. But you will find mess up after mess up after mess up of people who aren't willing to confess. God can't fix what you won't confess. God can't fix what you're not willing to say, Lord, Help me, move here, meet me here. Here is the exposure of my heart, and I need you. My son, Canaan, um, came to me. I was in my office, and he, he knocks on the door. He opens up the door. I can tell he's deeply troubled. And he says, Dad, so I need to tell you something, but you promise me you won't get mad. <laughs> right? I said, sure, bud. I was like working and, and focusing on something. I said, sure, bud. What's going on? What do you got to tell me? And he said, Dad, I went to the garage, and I tried to build you something, and I made a huge mess. I said, now I'm mad. And I took off. I started, hey. He was like, no, no, Dad. You said you wouldn't get mad, Dad. I promise. I tried to clean it up, and it just got worse. And Dad, I don't know. And I went into my garage. This boy, <laughs> he took all, I had a pile of scrap wood. He took all my scrap wood. He took, I had this container of, like, miscellaneous screws and nails and everything else. He took all of that took my drill. He took all of my tips to my drill. Every, all of, all, he took literally everything. My drill, he, and he got a bottle of Gorilla Glue. <laughs> Listen, let me tell you something. When they say Gorilla Glue is stronger than a thousand nails, they're not lying. Like, I don't know what is in that stuff, but he, he tried to, I don't even know what he did. Looked like he just, it exploded in his hands. He got Gorilla Glue everywhere. I had stuff glued to the battery of my drill. I still can't get off. I got a little little hexagon bit that's glued to the bottom of my drill. I had wood that was glued together, glued to the floor, glued to the work. There was just eight, literally, sockets that are glued together that I can't get apart. I mean, he made this huge, huge mess. And he could tell I was mad. And I walked out and I said, what in the heck? is going on in here and he starts weeping <laughs> like that choking can't breathe cry you know <laughs> and I'm like what is wrong with you and he said dad you promised you wouldn't get mad and the Lord spoke to my heart in the middle of his confession he didn't need his dad to crush him he needed his dad to comfort him in the heart of his confession. I could see it. He was so sincere. And yes, he screwed up hundreds of dollars worth of stuff. (laughs) But he was so sincere, and he was so broken by it. I didn't have a choice. I got on my knees, and I was like, love you. (laughs) Thanks for screwing up everything in my garage. Just throw it all out and pray, you know? But there's something about confession that endears the heart of a father to his children. That's what we see 
in Scripture. That's what we see with the nation of Israel. They are drawn by confession. They grow in intimacy through confession. And then let's finish right here. Nehemiah 10, the covenant with God. Nehemiah 9, 38 through 10, 1. It says the people responded. Listen to how they respond. They spend hours in the word. They spend hours worshiping. They understand God now and who God is. It says the people responded. In view of all this, we are making a solemn promise and putting it in writing. On this sealed document are the names of our leaders and Levites and priests. Verse 10, or chapter 10, verse 1. It says the document was ratified and sealed with the following names and the entire community makes a covenant. When I think of covenant, I think, uh, and, and you can see this throughout scripture, our earthly representation of covenant that should model the covenant that God has with us is marriage. So in June, Anna and I renewed our vows. We did a 10-year surprise vow. I know, all oh, right, you want to see a video of it? You want to see a video of it? Here, show them, show them the video. It's one minute. Show them the video really quick. <laughs> I want to be there when the voices in your head are loud enough to make you lose your mind. You bring me joy, happiness, and a deep sense of being loved. And I love who I am when I'm with you. I love how I feel when I'm with you. Nothing brings me greater comfort or peace than spending quality time with you. The real me, the truest me, and the me that I want to be all come out when I'm with you. I always knew God had great plans for us, but living in the fulfillment of it is still pretty surreal. Yet at the end of the day, I'd give it all away to have you. I believe our best years are ahead. I will love you fiercely. I will pray for you daily. I will be honest and true to you. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. My commitment to you today is to live out this verse daily, to honor Jesus in my actions, in my words, and to be gentle and gracious to you. I love you. Uh. <laughs> so here's where I want to land. You watch that and you think, oh, beautiful, perfect, happy family with wonderful, obedient kids that never destroy anything, right? And I watch that and I see a person that I have covenant with, the most important covenant with here on earth. And you know what the biggest building blocks to that covenant have been? It's not the great things. It's not the things that we post on our highlight reels. It's the hell we've had to walk through. It's the challenge. Come on, married couples, you know what I'm talking about. The things that unite you the deepest are the things that you wrestle with the most. It's the challenges that you walk through. It's medical challenges with kids. It is difficulties in ministry. It is hardships in family. It is dealing with difficult relationships. It's, it's hurt that we have both given to each other. Those are the things when I see that and I think of a covenant that is deeper and stronger than any covenant I have here on earth. I think of the things that built the foundation, that strengthened it, were the hurts and challenges and difficulties that we've walked through. That's where he's at with the nation of Israel. 
He's saying the joy of the Lord is your strength and you may be broken right now, but you don't understand the brokenness that you are walking through is going to become a foundation for the work that I want to do in you. That's the place of intimacy I want to grow with you. That's where I want to meet you. That's where I want to strengthen you. I don't want to strengthen you where everything is great. I want to strengthen you when you are grieving. I want to strengthen you when you are hurting. That's when we get to the revival and rebuilding of our own souls.